welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A and uh, today it's going to be, uh, predominantly it's going to be uh, astronomical and uh, we thank you very much everyone for sending all uh, your questions in as well, we've got loads of questions to get through. Uh, Helen is with us uh, as usual this week, I'm sorry I wasn't with you last week, that was over various different issues or something or other which I'm not going to bother telling you about um, and uh, we are uh, today joined by, uh, I will give you the, give, give you all the announcements of, of their full titles shortly but by uh, Chris Linton who was on one of the very early uh, Sunday Science Q&As and I'm really pleased to have for the first time Dr. Tana Joseph as well uh, is going to be joining us. Uh, a few things to tell you. Uh, one of them is, well, I've actually got the list here. I might as well just read it out. Uh, oh, next week. Um, I think there's not going to necessarily be a Sunday Science Q&A because we did uh, something with the Blue Dot Festival, which we're not allowed to announce yet, but more than likely uh, via Cosmic Shambles there will be uh, uh, an event that we did for Blue Dot Festival, which of course is not actually uh, physically happening within uh, the, the field near Macclesfield, as I like to call Jodrell Bank, and uh, they, that's how they love it being described. Yeah, we just call it the field near Macclesfield, and uh, so it's not happening there, but there are lots of uh, Blue Dot events, and we have done uh, a very special event, a uh, very special blue dot based uh, event. Um, also, this would have been um, Latitude weekend. So, uh, again, we would have been doing lots of different things. Uh, was it Snow Patrol that I'd have been avoiding? Uh, I'd have probably been avoiding listening to Snow Patrol this weekend. But in fact, now I, it's been much easier to avoid listening to Snow Patrol uh, because Latitude's not been going on. Uh, but I will mention that uh, the Teenage Student Neuro Hurdles, uh, which is uh, that's uh, Suze Kundu. Uh, Dean Burnett, Susie Gage uh, and uh, Pete Etchells and uh, there's also uh, the latest episode of Genetic Shambles is coming up uh, or indeed is up and we've recorded that and uh, on Tuesday night there is also a Royal Academy of Engineering uh, event and Helen Chersky is uh, presenting that so I might ask her shortly what's going on there I think that's all you really need to know, there'll be more show and tell this week, there'll be uh, some new book shambles there's also a Richard Holloway book shambles, Richard's written another uh, fantastic book Richard the uh, former Bishop of Edinburgh who has a very interesting journey with his uh, faith um, and uh, and I suppose now his, his kind of godlessness really his, his book Godless Morality was certainly one book which helped uh, him leave the church and the church perhaps give 
gave him a little nudge uh, as he went as well. So anyway, we are joined today, uh, as I said, by a fantastic group of people. First of all, I'm going to go to uh, normal, normal co-host, co-host last week's week. solo host, Helen Chersky. How are you doing, Helen? I am I all am right. right. I am with a different background today, uh, but yes, all good. I'm slightly, you I've just been psyching, I've just been in a rush, so I'm, I'm, say that again? You seem to have the backdrop for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, as far as I can see. Have well, you, been you know, why not? I think we should work our way through the films, frankly. And next week, next time, you see, I something is arriving tomorrow, which will make my next background extremely exciting. And I'm very excited about it. And I will let everyone guess uh, what it's going to be, because I'm very excited. Now, we'll start off with your, uh, you have a show. And t- you've, in fact, you, you, you've cycled, you were slightly late uh, because you, 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 you've, you've cycled to this week's show and tell. Um, what have, have you got? got? Um, well, I have a small show and tell because I had to cycle with it. So what I have are, look very boring here. They're little orange ping-pongy ball things. But this uh, is the frontier in glacial science. So these are among the random bits of science I still have on my shelves. And inside each little ping-pong ball thing, here's one. Here's all the, it's a tiny bit of electronics. You can see there's all these tiny little uh, little board in there with chips on it. And they're all embedded in this resin. Um, And the reason for these existing is that we do not know what happens inside glaciers. And it's quite an important question, what happens inside glaciers. These are places where there's piled up solid ice on land. It's very slowly flowing out to sea. And the thing is, they have tunnels in them. So water melts up on the glacier. It seeps through the glacier and it comes out the other end. And nobody knows what happens in between. So these were built to drop in at the top. And uh, the hope was that they would go all the way through the glacier and come out at the bottom. uh, And they're they're, they're actually glow in the dark. They've got special glow in the dark stuff. So someone could find them. And then you could look at all the data they collected and see where they'd been. Now, in practice, so this was done uh, six, seven years ago now, I think. And uh, what happened was that we put loads of them in at the top of the glacier. This is somebody else's main research project. And none of them came out the bottom. So these are the spare ones, the only ones left, um, the ones that didn't make it out. So somewhere inside that glacier, probably frozen solid now to, to pop out of the bottom in 100 years time, there are lots of little orange balls like this that will probably act as um, like archaeological finds for the glacial scientists of the day. But the nice thing about these is they're really small and cute. And it is, it's, it's a place we can't go. I mean, the, the rivers on these glaciers, they... It's like plunging waterfalls and enormous great big caverns. Even Indiana Jones wouldn't go near it. So humans are not going to go down there. They're full of rushing water, which is all at zero degrees. So, yeah, these little orange balls, they're sitting there with data on them. They know. And we don't know because they're still stuck inside the glacier. So I've got the only ones left. They, so they one of these may not be touched by another human for 100 years. Well, well, they're going to be the kind of AI that evolve into the super robots that eventually uh, rule the earth in a more benevolent fashion. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, yes, I think so. But I think they might join up with the ocean and become kind of ocean robot gods or something. I, I, you know, give, let's, uh, I don't know. Let's find out. Oh, that's, that, 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 that's beautiful. It's, uh, I, and because it is such an in, in, intriguing and very small, well, not very small, of course, nowadays in the in the world of, of nanotechnology, but uh, bulky almost. But um, engineering, can you tell us about the engineering event? So that, the engineering uh, event is exciting. There is a big 
National Engineering event, the McRobert Award, and it's given out for all kinds of exciting things. And obviously they would normally have a big showy dinner and all kinds of posh things like that, but instead they've got us. So I will be hosting a panel discussion that evening with the winner of the McRobert Award and various other people. And the topic is really interesting. It's about um, engineering of the future and the nice thing about all of this engineering is that as the, I'm not going to reveal all the secrets, but as as the panel will show, um, we think about the engineering of the future as being swanky spaceships and, you know, fusion drives and all this kind of Star Trekky stuff. But a lot of the necessary engineering for the future is wonderfully mundane in some ways and brilliantly inventive in others and we're going to be digging right all into that who should be the engineers of the future what kind of mentality are they going to need and what are they going to be engineering uh, and so i have been speaking to the panelists this week and they are a fascinating bunch really i know you'd think you expect me to be biased but uh, and one of them is the most enthusiastic man about diggers i have ever met and that is all i'm going to say genuinely made my day that conversation so come along and join us on tuesday uh it's an hour i think it's 6 30 in the evening can't just remember the time uh but the, all the stuff will be online on the cosmic shambles network and yeah it will be a fascinating discussion we've got some really brilliant guests so do join us so that's it it's 7 p.m 7 p.m starting time and that's free for everyone to watch as well thank you helen that's brilliant we've got loads of questions coming in a moment uh, now we're joined as i said for the first time by dr tana joseph uh, who's based, uh, based at the university of manchester now you said you had problems with uh, some issues of what you can show and tell uh, yes. Hi, everyone. Hi, listeners. Hi, panel. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here for the first time and hopefully not the last time. Um, yes, yeah, so I am an X-ray astronomer. And that means that the telescopes I use are in space because our, um, our planet's atmosphere doesn't allow X-rays to penetrate down to the ground. So in order to detect uh, X-ray emission or X-ray light coming from various objects in space, we need to put these telescopes outside the atmosphere and have them flying around the Earth. And so I often get lots of requests for photos saying, oh, just, I'm sure you have a beautiful shot of you with the telescope. And then I have to, you know, break people's hearts and say, well, the telescopes I use are entirely space-based. And in fact, there are a couple that I use now that are radio telescopes which are on the ground, but one is in Australia. Um, in the outback, so extremely unlikely that I'll ever go there. And the other one is in South Africa and also in a semi-desert added region that takes a few hours drive to get there and you need um, PPE and lots of uh, permission signs to be there because it's, um, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no hospital um, if you get bitten by the snakes or scorpions that live there. So it's all a bit um, inaccessible, which is why we built the telescopes there. There's no interference. So, yeah, I don't have a lot of photos or if any really uh, of me with the telescopes that I use. So instead for my show and tell, I am going to tell you a bit about myself personally. I have two items. So one is my bear. It's a little wooden bear um, carved. Uh, some friends in California gave it to me, and it's it's a carving of the, the bear of the state flag of California, the Republic of California. And her name is Bear Linda, because what other name could she possibly have? And the reason that I got this as a Christmas gift is because I love bears. And I try and bring them into all of the public talks, that and Predator. 
separate thing. Maybe next time I'll talk about my uh, my plate atop session. But I love bears. And of course, there are two constellations in the Northern Hemisphere named after bears, Ursa Minor and Ursa Major, the big bear and the little bear. And they are not visible in the Southern Hemisphere where I'm from. So there are some of the constellations that you can't see. And so being African, being from the Southern Hemisphere, the reason I'm super into bears is because we just don't have them. Africa has and is famous for all different kinds of animals, um, marsupials notwithstanding. And we have all these kind of like, you know, like famous, we have the big five and we have classic things like a giraffe, which is entirely unmistakable. But one of the the main land apex predator we don't have is bears. And so my sister and I, um, we got really into bears. I'm, I am evangelistic about bears. And I've convinced one of my lifelong friends to also jump on the bear train. So I get to look at this every day. It's on my desk by Belinda. I love that because it's the best example of the grass always being greener ever. Yeah. Anybody who lives in London would love to see a zebra. <laughs> You know, the sorts of things that are common, common, perhaps in South Africa. And you don't, you have zebras everywhere. You're not interested in those. It's all about the bears. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's, it's, it seems like I'm being a bit, like, you know, I'm being a bit mean to the African animals and I adore them and they're all fantastic and great, but it's always, yeah, it's always, you always crave the thing you can't really have. And for me, that's bears. And the other bit more related to our topic today, my other but of show and tell is a Hello Kitty astronaut that I got um, from one of my sisters. And this little toy embodies so much of what I love about the world. So it's space-based, it's a little cat in space. Um, It's mostly pink, which is my favorite color. And it was given to me by one of my siblings and my siblings are my favorite people in the whole world. And my sister was holding on to this for me. She got it um, from from a Happy Meal that she purchased during the World Cup that happened in South Africa in 2010, years ago already. So, yeah, so there's a lot of significance and a lot of importance on this little Hello Kitty. Um, And it's also just really adorable and tiny. And so these are on my desk. They travel the world with with me wherever I set up shop for my next job. Um, Yeah, and they just remind of my family, of space in their own different ways, uh, the stars, constellations, etc. That's one. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. I like that. Yeah, just that bit there. Two objects. Those are the objects which carry all of your kind of, you know, your your, your sense of the other people that you you the connectivity. I think that's an you know, connectivity is such an important part. Svalbard's a good place to go to meet bears, isn't it? As far as I remember, if you're going to pop to the seed bank, uh, I was meant to do a gig at Svalbard till someone actually worked out how much the gig was going to cost and the size of the potential audience due to the. <laughs> And, Very small. Uh, but I, someone said, yeah, you'll enjoy constantly going, the bears are coming, get back in. Uh, so uh, uh, what, what are we going to see from, uh, I, I hope we're either going to see see a, a, Cindy, a, a Cindy doll uh, that is uh, perhaps a, a subaquatic Cindy doll. Is that what we're going to see? I, from I, I'm a Hello Kitty astronaut, for starters. Secondly, correct, you, will have, you would have loved Svalbard. One of my favourite things is Svalbard Museum because I've been there to visit the people who have the radar studying the Northern Lights. And Svalbard Museum is one-third Arctic animals, stuffed walruses, that sort of thing. One-third history of Svalbard, bits of old mining equipment. And then they didn't have anything to put in the rest of the third. So anyone who lives on Svalbard can have a little display in the museum. And when I was there, 
uh, there were a couple of parents had taken all the stuff from the bedroom of their daughter who'd gone off to university in Oslo and just put it in the museum um, so that they could have the space in their house back. So I think this is a brilliant example of what a museum should be. Um, and, and for a moment, it made me forget that there were heavily armed polar bears outside the town um, wanting to eat astronomers. But it is a bit like that, isn't it? So I had a friend who, you know, a few years ago, they moved out. They had to live overseas or something. So they just left the house and they came, you know, they lived without all their stuff. And they came back and they said, it's like walking into a museum of me. <laughs> That's right. It's because disturbing. it was suddenly sort of distant from them. But obviously it was all their stuff. And yeah. yeah. It's, it's, well, I felt this. I went back to my office for the first time. It was like a museum of what I was doing in March, but I'm supposed to be doing show and tell, I think. So um, it's perhaps a bit more, I'm completely obsessed with Comet Neowise, which is just beautiful and which we will talk about. But um, I've got this old book that I found uh, a while ago. This is um, The Story of the Heavens by a guy called Robert Ball, who was an Irish astronomer who ended up in Cambridge. He was a, a mathematician. Um, he, his most important book is called The Theory of Screws, and I highly recommend it if you're interested in 19th century uh, mechanical geometry. Um, but he also wrote, he, he gave a lot of the Royal Institution Christmas lectures. He wrote for a public audience. And this is one of his public books. So I thought I'd see what he said about comets. And um, I, I really like what I want to show you is this print of the comet of 1822. Sorry, 1882. No, 18, yeah, 1882, which is this beautiful thing. But what I love about this print is it's a sub this is a book from 1900, but it's a very suburban scene. You've got a comet uh, above the rooftops, and it's in about the position that I saw Neowise a couple of nights ago, low in the sky. Um, and so, so here we are. So 1882 was a great comet, and there is an argument going on about whether this comet Neowise that we've got in the sky is a, officially a great comet. It's certainly quite a good comet. Um, but I love the fact that, that Robert Ball was enjoying a view of it uh, of something similar, what, 138 years ago. It's also, it's also you don't often see a print in, in books which is so dominated by just darkness. Whereas, no. you know, print normally, I think, I, I imagine there may well have been arguments for that because normally they say, look, we're going to have to make, we, we, so, so we've got to want lots of detail. But that, just see the darkness, the very, just there, that, that, that faint illumination of the of the rooftops a very beautiful print yeah i should have said it's from it's from streatham so it's a, a drawing of the view from streatham and it's got a couple of stars in there so it's a sort of scientific drawing he's tried to show the comet that it that he's also got the place so so i'm really i haven't i don't remember seeing that before i'm really pleased to have, to have found it and um, the book by the way was somebody's school prize so it's nicely bound with the logo of um king's school in somewhere in shropshire and um, Cyrilio William Watermow won the prize for mathematics in 1901. And then I've got his book now. What Brilliant. makes a comet a great comet instead of a good comet? Is a criteria for that? Yeah, so people... Basically. Sorry. Yeah, so it's bright. It's kind of its own brightness. So if it's a great comet, then, like, yeah, it's, it needs to be bright enough to see in the, by the naked eye, etc. And I certainly have seen um, Neowise with the naked eye, but I can... I can imagine that it's 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 on the fence. Because, for instance, if you could see, I'm sure if it was bright enough where you could actually see the the two tails, for instance, with a naked eye, then I I, I reckon there wouldn't be a, a an argument against that. Yeah, I reckon my working definition is, is if people who aren't into astronomy go, "What on earth is that in the sky?" 
without even looking, then that's a great comet. And there have been comets, though, some some 19th century... Ninth, the 19th century seemed particularly blessed with great comets, but they certainly had comets that were visible in daytime. Is there, um, is, there is there a level above great then, or is great as good? Is is great the highest you can be? As a comet? so so far, I think great is as good. But daytime comet is pretty good. So yeah. if if you're a comet that's so bright you you're visible even in the, in the daytime sky, that's quite impressive. And then then the, I guess there's but comets are funny because they become famous for other reasons. Like people think Halley, every people have heard of Halley's comet, and and I think people always expect Halley's comet to be spectacular. But it it when it came past in 1986. Uh, its last visit to the inner solar system, it wasn't that it wasn't a great comet, and it will be even worse next time, um, just oh, because of the way the geography was. Yeah, last time you were great, and yeah. now you've been relegated to quite good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but but quite well known. So Halley's comet still got that star quality. quality people, people want, want to, see. to see it because of what of, of the name, not because it's churning out the hits. Still, the um, well, let's start. Look, well, let's start, in fact, with some questions about Neowise. Uh, Tom, can I start with you? Andrea would like to know, where is Neowise going for the next 7,000 years then? It is whooping around the solar system. So I had to double check this. And I won't lie, I've got the Wikipedia page up in front of me in case it gets very technical. Um, but basically, the Neowise is, it's barely on a, a closed orbit, which means that um, we're going to wait a very, very long time for it to come around again. Um, so thousands of years, so on the order of about 5,000 years. So it's going to be, yeah, traveling all the way out um, to the far reaches of the solar system. And then it'll wind its way back um, to the inner solar system again and come past Earth. But it's as far as even you could think of it as on a not just on a human lifetime scale, but a human civilization time scale. We're not going to see uh, this bad boy again. So when do, when is it when do, when is it the the when will it be the end of Neowise? I presume eventually, over time through yeah. attrition, etc. There there is a point uh, when Chris. When, yeah, so, what is lifespan? So, so comets do do break up. So so most of the time in the orbit, they're perfectly safe. You have to think a comet is basically a dirty snowball. So, um, and so most of the time, when it's out in the outer solar system, it's frozen, it's static. But every time they come in and they grow these tails, it's because they're evaporating. So um, one way a comet reaches the end of its life is that it can break up. Uh, and actually, we had people were very excited about um, comet Atlas. Um, which was coming in a few months ago, um, and that was supposed to be bright, but it just broke up uh, as it came in. And you might end up with it, something that might cause a meteor shower, but you don't get a spectacular comet. And we have seen uh, examples in the past of Beesler's comet, I think it is, that came in and was nice and bright. And then the next time there were two of them, uh, and then it didn't return for a third trip. So, so that's one thing that can happen. And another thing that can happen to comets is they get too close to Jupiter. And if you get close to Jupiter, Jupiter's gravity will will mess with your orbit, and they often get shifted onto short period orbits. So, so a lot of the comets that come back every few years do so because they've encountered Jupiter, and then you but then you boil away pretty quickly. So you might only exist for maybe a few centuries if you once you're on a short period orbit. So, 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 so those are your two two possibilities. The third one is that you might get slung out of the solar system entirely. Again, because you got too close to, to Jupiter, and, and then you travel through interstellar space, and the odds of you encountering another star are pretty low. Though we do know it, it now happens because we've seen two 
objects come from other solar systems and fly through our own. And and uh, Tana, just because you've got the Wikipedia page open, we've got a couple of others I think which are quite suitable. Which is uh, Rob would like to know uh, how big is it and how fast is it going. These are all very good questions, and let me see if Wikipedia can give me the exact the size of it. Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of orbital parameter stuff. Well, well, what, one of the problems you've got. Yeah. yeah, so one of the problems you've got is definition of size. Yeah, what, yeah, what's the size? So, like, you can think of, like, is it the extent of the tails? And as I mentioned earlier, there are two tails. There's a radiation tail and a particle tail, and they exist for various reasons. So the radiation tail always points away from the sun because it's the interaction of, basically, it's the sun kind of melting away the comet. So the, the, the charged particles that are given off by the sun in the solar wind interact with this um, dirty snowball and start to melt it away. And so there's, um, so yeah, so there's that tail blowing off directly, whichever, which, um, whichever position the, the comet is in, the tail, that one tail will always point away from the sun. And then there's the other tail that's made up of particles. It's basically the trailing, as it's moving through space, the trailing of, of bits and pieces of it falling off and melting away. And so, and if you have a good enough picture or good enough telescope or binoculars, you can actually see the two tails separate out. So, which tail do you use? Um, which um, the the size of the actual um, dirty snowball? Uh, there's yeah, it's it's hard to get a handle on that. Yeah. of comet, I'm not actually sure of the scales of them. Right, right down in the middle, the nucleus, the nucleus for this comet is maybe one or two kilometers across. So, so these things are tiny. This is the thing about a comet is that they're they're not if they if it wasn't for the fact they grew these magnificent tails, which can be um, hundreds of thousands of miles long in some cases. Um, the the nuclei nuclei are really small. So, so there was comet Churumayev Gerasimenko, which the European Rosetta probe went and explored. And that nucleus was about four kilometers across. So that's about the size of the city, like the central bit of the very central bit of London. So these things but are that's six extraordinarily size. bright for something so small, isn't it? Because it's not giving it's not giving off light. We're just we're seeing reflected light. Right, but what most of the light you're right. So the nucleus is then surrounded by the coma, which is an atmosphere. Um, so so you only see them um, when when they're close to the sun and they've grown this atmosphere. And then you've got a shiny cloud of icy particles that are very reflective. So that, that's what you're seeing. But for example, Halley's Comet, we, even the biggest telescope in the world can't show you Halley's Comet today because it's actually, it must be nearly at the furthest point of its orbit. And it, it, it's so faint that we've got no hope of seeing it. It'll be recovered um, on its way in when it's just a few years away from being in the inner solar system. Yeah, so you really need that interaction, interaction with, with um, the the nucleus, uh, with the frozen particles, and the sun's uh, the sun's wind to make it light up like that. Well, as we're talking about brightness, we have a question from Tommy, and Tommy would like to know, to know why is why is the moon not always the same brightness? So, who'd like to answer that? Slide the Earth bits, oh, and then we'll let the astronomy yeah, the outside, the Helen, there's a question about the movie Abyss coming up. That's deep sea. That is oh, very yeah. your question. Don't you worry. We'll, we'll, we, know we'll. Which we know which directions we're going in this week, okay? We know who's <laughs> to go to the up question, who's going for the down, and I know up and down doesn't really exist, but let's Oh, I not like this. I take the down. Good. 
<laughs> yeah. And if we ever get to psychological downs, then I will take on those questions. Okay? <laughs> That's fine. I love That's... this Venn diagram. That's okay. why I'm an artist. Um, so, Tony, yes, what are the moon's brightness? So the moon changes in brightness, but also sometimes in colour. Sometimes you'll have those blood moons, um, or you'll have, um, you know, you'll get a halo around the moon, and it has to do with atmospheric conditions. So um, the, the atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere that I mentioned before, it's about 10 kilometres thick from the ground to where, where outer space begins. And so depending on how turbulent that is or if there are any particulates or anything like that, it changes the way the light is scattered. So you'll get, so sometimes things will look a bit fuzzy. Sometimes things look really precise, like you can go out and it's a cloudless night, but the stars are twinkling a little bit more because there's the atmosphere moves. That's what, for instance, what wind is, it's moving air. And so you get the different layers of the atmosphere and there's turbulence um, if you get, like I said, if you get particles, then you get the lights uh, in the atmosphere, you get like light scattering. And when you scatter the light, you get different colors coming out. So for instance, um, there was something in me, um, in the news a few days ago about all that sand blowing off the Sahara and how it's tacking around the world and all of that. So all of those kind of things, um, if there's a volcano, if there's a, you know, sometimes when you get volcanoes erupting, um, halfway around the world, you, people will start reporting really gaudy, gorgeous sunsets. Because, um, yeah, because of dust and particles and ash and things in the earth scattering the light in different ways. And that affects the moon's brightness as well. And then there's also the fact that the moon is not in a perfect circular orbit around, um, around the earth. Um, the orbit changes. So it's not a perfect circle. It's slightly oval. And then it also is tilted. And all those kind of things affect um, how much light we actually, how much light is reflected off um, of the moon that we can see on the Earth as well? Brilliant, thank you. This is now the next question is about uh, making, uh, stu making stuff and technology. So I think any three of you will be able to do this. But I'm going to start with you, Chris. This is from Martha. Uh, could you build any sort of home-sized radio telescope, or do they need to be really massive and in a field? Yeah, well, this is definitely, uh, but we yeah. have somebody who works with radio telescopes on the call, but we've got one on the roof of our building. So uh, you can also convert an old school satellite dish, if you've got one of those, into a radio telescope that will let you detect the sun uh, and possibly the Milky Way as well, which are the brightest things in the sky. But you could definitely do this. Yeah. So, so tell me, how would you go about this then? So what's fantastic about radio astronomy, as someone who's, like I said, I'm an X-ray astronomer, but I've moved a lot into doing radio, radio is that, is that um, it's, it's very low tech in terms of the hardware. The, the complicated stuff really comes in with the electronics when you're trying to build something like the, the VLA, the, Charles, uh, the Carl Jansky VLA in the US, or um, the Meerkat radio telescope in South Africa, or the ASCAP telescope in Australia, when you have lots of these kind of dishes moving together. And the, yeah, the magic is in the electronics, but the hardware, um, you can make a radio telescope out of chicken wire, out of um, wire hangers. And the trick is to just get them at the right size. So your antenna on your car, that catches radio waves, um, your little satellite dish to help you watch TV. Those are all kind of, those are radio receivers. So um, you can go on the internet and you can Google how to make a, a little backyard radio telescope and put one together and you really just need basic stuff. So, you know, but it, it's going to be a lot of wires and it's not going to look 
exactly how you think a um, a telescope, a scientific instrument is going to look. There's a good chance that it's just strings of wires kind of like banged together. It's not necessarily going to be this perfect dish shape um, like you see in the, the beginning of the movie Contact. I'm not sure what the demographics of this audience <laughs> is, so Contact might not really resonate. Um, for listeners my age and older, we all know Jodie Foster is. Um, they're not going to look like that, but it's basically a yeah, chicken wire, bits and yeah, bits of metal, um, that kind of thing. You can put it together, and then the electronics is a little bit more complicated. But yeah, that's what's yeah, that's what's fantastic about about these radio telescopes, and I've seen them being used in a scientific context. I went to one of my first radio conferences about ten years ago, and it was in Mauritius. And the Mauritians had decided that they wanted to put something together really low cost and start heading into radio astronomy. And it was just made out of chicken wire, little bits of barbed wire. And they showed us their results and they saw the Milky Way and um, the, you know, the readings that they got and the measurements that they took lined up with published data. So it was all really great. And that's how they, um, they decided to progress from there. There's some really famous telescopes, bits of the Mullard radio astronomy, you know, the, the little green men, Jocelyn Belbonnell and those, those, the discovery of pulsars. I've been to the field and they bring you to the field and they say, this is the telescope and it looks like washing lines. Yeah, it looks because like that's what, that's what works. <laughs> and then all these just kind of bits of wire going across. And that's all you need to make world changing discoveries. But, but there's an interesting thing here, because I think admire radio astronomers, because particularly people who build the instruments, because, it, you know, optical astronomers are a bit precious about mirrors and everything has to be precise. And if radio astronomy, because the wavelengths that you're looking at are large, it doesn't matter if things aren't perfectly aligned or if there's a bolt or if there's something between your chicken wire. So it's a much more sort of, I don't know. Right? Forgiving, yeah, much more you, forgiving. Yeah. yeah. There you go. I was going to say it's a little like the way I cook, which is just throwing <laughs> stuff in and hoping that the result will be the end rather than any specific. Are you specific saying that you could cook at radio wavelengths, but, wavelengths not in, but not in the invisible light? You're cooking with invisible light. <laughs> particularly good at cooking at microwave wavelengths as okay. well. Yeah. That's exactly the joke I was hoping you were, you were going to make. <laughs> <laughs> was spot on. I'm I'll tell you one. about the robustness of radio telescopes and radio observations. Um, during my master's, I was very lucky to uh, be able to visit the Nancy radio telescope, which is um, sort of in the middle of France. And so for a week, I got to practice my high school level French. I got much better at my French. I got to eat like homemade French food every day. It was fantastic. And I also got to hang out with this radio telescope that is if it was a dish, it would be a dish about 100 meters across like you have in Effelsberg or in the Green, or Green Bank Telescope in the US. But they did, and when it was built, they didn't have the structural engineering prowess to be able to make it into one dish. So it had, so instead it was this mirror that was tens of meters across. So when I say mirror, I just mean a giant, like a few giant sheets of metal with holes drilled in. And then uh, across the field about 150 meters away, a curved bit of metal. And that was the radio telescope. But because radio telescopes are so forgiving and the wavelengths are so big, you can have small holes, like say a few centimeters across, and that won't actually change how the telescope operates. So the upshot of all of this is that, is that some of the radio, te uh, radio telescope operators and astronomers, when they get bored, they would basically practice the golf swings um, against the reflector. And they would take pot shots at it because it's nice because then it, the balls always come back to you. And so you'd have these little like 
dents and and divots in the radio telescope, but it was still a perfectly well functioning um, astronomy instrument, and I got a lot of good data for my thesis from it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. The uh, um, I'll just mention by the way, tip jar. Which is uh, don't forget if you are uh, if you're enjoying this and you have a little bit of spare cash, uh, if you can put money in the tip jar, that's fantastic. As you may well have seen, the the attempts to bring back uh, live performance, etc., are not going that well at the moment. And uh, we've been building up a resource for art centres and uh, some of the artists we know who uh, have been finding it very very difficult. And you can also support us via Patreon if uh, that's possible, or if you want something back in return, just go to my Instagram uh, page where I'm selling all my books, and you can buy a book off me instead uh the uh it's going to take a while by the way i've got quite a few so it's not going to be an issue um now i'm going to move to the abyss question by the way i think we need to do a, a kind of come dine with me with um four different groups of scientists because i'd be very interested in terms of biologists astrophysicists theoretical physicists you know which one are we going to find ourselves engineers. going? engineers you want the engineers and the material scientists in there I think, yeah, I mean, serial scientist. The BBC, there was that chef versus science, and it was him and um, one of the very famous Michelin-starred chefs, and Mark had to make all the things, you know, do all the things without the without the, the property. And the only, thing, the only thing the chef was impressed by, as I recall, was that he put, Mark put red wine in a blender to aerate it. And the chef had to admit that it, it tasted better but he said he would never do it because it was not the proper thing to do <laughs> and completely missed the point. So, well, yeah, maybe, good, so, well yeah, maybe. it's good that we're on um, aerating liquids because that does bring us very neatly to the question about the abyss. Um, this is from uh, Anchovy, maybe real name, maybe not real name. Who's to tell? Uh, and Anchovy would like to know, in the movie The Abyss, they had divers breathing an oxygen supersaturated liquid. Is this science fiction or is it possible? Uh, so, Helen, as uh, as you're the person who I would, I'm guessing probably has done the most kind of uh, stuff in the sea, and uh, so what is super saturated? I'm not on the abyss, so I don't know exactly whether they were breathing something that came out of the liquid or whether they were somebody put the liquid in their lungs, which sounds like a difficult thing to get rid of. So that would definitely be a bad idea. Um, the thing about oxygen is that so the reason we if you're going to breathe gas, so I'm assuming, not knowing much about the abyss, that whatever was generating the oxygen, people were actually breathing gas because otherwise your alveolar would get all bunged up and a lot of things would go wrong. Um, so uh, the thing about oxygen is it actually becomes poisonous if it goes above a partial pressure of about 1.4. So that means that's, uh, that's seven times the concentration of oxygen in our atmosphere. So um, divers get around this by... Uh, mixing in other gases but it does get complicated you have to mix in different gases to balance out the pressures um, so you could perhaps use a liquid an oxygen saturated liquid to store your oxygen it would not be a space efficient way of doing it you could perhaps do it um, you definitely wouldn't want to breathe liquid that's a bad idea but the problem is not actually getting oh, you can put oxygen in the tank it's nice and easy you can balance it with other gases the point is not having so much oxygen it poisons you which is you go to very very deep depths um, as in the abyss you need the gas to both push out on the on your surroundings and not poison you um, and that becomes very difficult with oxygen around below depths of about 140 meters so um I think it would be complicated and there are better ways of doing things. That's my answer to that question. So, so, so I was <laughs> just looking because I 
I think it's the the three body problem trilogy by by a Chinese yes Chinese by the artist, name I can't where, pronounce yes. yeah where they do this right so in order to get spacecraft to go to extremely high velocity for some the the crew somehow are able to enter a liquid state which enables them to breathe but also cushions them against extreme acceleration um, it ends badly. Uh, for pretty much everyone, but but at least well, the thing theory... about that is you couldn't shift the gas through the liquid quickly enough. That's the problem with that is that diffusion only works so fast. You're on laminar flow when you're in alveoli; they're very very small. It's a very large surface area, so you basically need layers of liquid to move across the surface and replace themselves. And the problem is you can't do that fast enough. Diffusion of oxygen through the liquid would be very, very slow. And the replacement rate of the liquid would also be very, very slow. So so that, I, I, I think, so, it's a so, nice so if were, science fiction book. So if you were a species of intelligent fish, could you use could use in your spacecraft, right? So they would be better, uh, therefore better prepared for high yes, acceleration. Yes, because their gills are the right shape. So they have one-way one fl flow over their gills, whereas our alveoli are in and out. But even so, for the fish, it would be difficult because you still have to have quite a lot of oxygen. Um, it's interesting because there's things like tuna, for example, that require a lot of oxygen that do have very efficient gills. So it obviously works for them. But... So I'm not sure. Yeah, go on. I had a, had a bit, of, bit of a Google, and apparently you can do this with mammals. Um, the tick is to use not nitrogen because the, it's something to do with the binding of oxygen to nitrogen. You can't get enough. Uh, coming to what you were saying now, you can't get enough oxygen um, in the liquid so that our lungs can actually get it out of the liquid. So you use something called per, perfluorocarbons. And then that binds, you can have a lot more oxygen in a liquid and then you pop that in the lungs and it does work. So then the problem becomes that you actually, so you can get the oxygen in, then the problem apparently becomes you can't get the carbon dioxide out. And so you do need some kind of mechanical ventilation to help you extract the, the carbon dioxide. And this has been done in lab experiments on mice. And they even at some point not too long ago tied it on premature babies whose lungs are apparently not yet ready for breathing air. But um, so they were trying to kind of mimic the, um, the amniotic fluid that, uh, that the babies would be dealing with um, as they were still growing. And that seemed to um, that's had some positive results, but it's still it's still an extremely complicated um, intervention that requires a lot of mechanical intervention as well. Um, so only under extremely controlled circumstances is it something that apparently can be done. I was blown away by this because I thought it was going to be a straight no, just like putting liquid in your lungs is always a bad idea. But apparently, the, it depends on the kind of liquid and very, very much on the circumstances. And whether or not oh, you're Don't a worry, the next question is... Uh... <laughs> Going to yeah. be about going to uh, be about uh, James Cameron's uh, view of the time travel uh, conundrums in Terminators One and Two. So we're the rest of the questions are just going to be different science-based questions around uh, James Cameron movies. We may well start with uh, Piranha Two: The Flying Killers, the uh, possibility of the uh, flying piranha fish. Um, uh, but we'll skip all the James Cameron questions we've had sent in. Don't worry. Um, I thought because we're quite near the end, we'll just do some nice easy ones on uh, gravitational waves and also dark matter because that can always just be knocked out. Of the park in a couple of minutes um this well first of all this is from melissa she says i have a very small and simple question i don't understand what a gravitational wave is um now it is of course that you know th this was a remarkable 
the the technology required, the weight for the technology. I mean, that, that's one of the beautiful things, isn't it? Which is you have almost is it is it all? It's pretty much a hundred years, isn't it, between nine, prediction nine years, yeah. and, and and detection. So, Chris, I'll start with you, and then I'll move. Sure. Uh, so, um, imagine hitting a drum. When you do that, the surface of the drum ripples, and you get those ripples spread out from the point where you've hit the drum. And it turns out space is like that. So if you hit space hard enough, ripples will spread out from where you hit it. Um, and those ripples are what we call gravitational waves. The problem is that space is really stiff. So you have to hit it really hard to get even a tiny wave to, to move. And so the only gravitational waves we've been able to detect are really tiny, and they're caused by really big things doing dramatic things. So we've detected gravitational waves from the merging of very massive, of massive black holes, and that causes enough of a bang that you get these ripples spreading out through space. And Tana, this is... It seems to me one of the problems people have with this is people have with this is it goes against their instinct that the you know, more of it. I don't understand why kids aren't taught from a very early age about the idea of space time about this. Yeah, because I think the way that many of us are taught that they're disconnected ideas. And also the idea of any sense of what, what you might call in inverted commas solidity or behaving that way. It, it means that. But when you do eventually come up with this idea, it's you've had 20 years of education where it, it feels just too odd? Um, I mean, even for scientists, it's it's a paradigm shift, like the gate you hate around. So waiting, so we might have to wait a little into mainstream curricula. Because uh, it is it is complicated when you when you think about it, because it's these waves, these gravitational waves are not waves that move through space, but the actual waves of space itself. And that's a complicated thing to get your head around. And then it's also, you have things about like, you know, um, when you think about it, anything that's moving is changing space. And so me moving around like this, I'm actually generating gravitational waves right now, but you can't detect them because they're so teeny tiny because space is so stiff. So you have this, also this idea um, that only very, very, very heavy things can change space, but that's not really true. It's about detection thresholds. It's about like, you know, at what point can, and, and again, this is very anthropocentric because we're saying at what point can we as humans with our current technology detect things? Um, that doesn't mean that they're undetectable to other systems, to other um, intelligent societies, et cetera. So there's, it, it gets very philosophical and meta very quickly. And it's going to take a while before this falters into the, yeah, like I said, into the mainstream and you get taught about it, but we absolutely should. And with the way technology is speeding up right now and the new discoveries coming in astronomy, it's going to be so much fun when you start comparing textbooks from 10 years ago. The stuff I learned as at university by the time I was starting my um, my PhD was already out of date. I was taught, for instance, that supernovae, uh, so massive ex explosions of massive stars, um, for certain kinds of supernovae called type 1 supernovae, that these were standard candles that had a, a very specific measurable brightness and you could use them. So if you saw them fainter, that meant that they were further away, etc. By the time I started my postgraduate studies, they were had been shifted to standardizable candles because we'd learned so much about these things that they're actually, it being fainter doesn't necessarily mean that it's further away. And so a lot of um, rehashing had to go into this. So things get out of date very quickly. So what we know now about gravitational waves 
Um, and the, the 99 year wait is really exciting. It needs to be added into the science textbooks. But in another 10 years when we've had, because the, um, the current gravitational wave detectors are all on the ground and we're busy working really hard to put one in space to upgrade the ones on the ground. And that's going to be another game changer. And that's in the next five to 10 years. And then we're going to have to have a different kind of conversation about gravitational waves. So it's always, it's, it's hard to stay on top of things. Um, and so your learning is, you know, you're learning about the, uh, or everyone's learning about the universe is going to have to change and keep changing because technology is changing so fast and allowing us to know more. So that's, yeah, that's really fun. And this is part of the reason why it's so hard to put it in a curriculum if it's going to be out of date in five years time. But there's a more, there's a more fundamental, fundamental point very quickly that I think, which is that gra the other two might correct me, but as far as I'm aware, gravitational waves are only the third reason we've got to know that the rest of the universe exists. We have light, we have neutrinos, and we have gravitational waves. And if we did not have those three things, we would not know that the rest of the universe was there. So I think there are some very fundamental points about gravitational waves that don't take the complication and the advance, I, and they're just the most basic thing. And we can definitely put that in the textbook. I, I think that's right. And it's not as it, I think we've been biased by light because we are creatures that mostly evolved to experience the world visually. We think that the shiny bits of the universe are most important. Um, and actually, um, if you pay attention to particles, or if you were gravi a gravitational wave being first, you would think the most important things in the universe are merging black holes. And then you'd only later discover that there's this, you know, these black holes live in galaxies, and maybe some of them come from these shiny things called stars that seem rather insubstantial. And, and, and so I think it's a reminder that we shouldn't be biased by what we can see, that that you know, our biases are a result of the detection method we use. And, and that's quite a profound thought. Yeah. And even comets, um, as we discussed earlier, comets are another kind of cosmic messenger, because um, as you said, Chris, they, we've now, they've been two visitors to our solar system from another star. So they, you know, so they also carry information. So all these, putting all of this together is what we call multi-messenger astronomy, where you have particles and light and gravitational waves and bits of space debris and rocks, things that fall from the sky um, and land here, and we can study the makeup of, you know, uh, the solar system. So not the universe at large, but the universe close by, and you put all those bits and pieces together. But yeah, we absolutely are biased by what comes naturally to us and what's intuitive to us. And so stepping outside their comfort zone um, does require a lot of careful thought. Right, we've got uh, we've got four minutes left. I'm four minutes see. left. I'm going to see how many of these we're going to get through, but I'm going to risk the dark matter question. This is from L. Thanks very much for this question, L. Uh, curious on the opinion of the recently observed recoiling electrons. Is this the beginning of the smoking gun of uh, dark matter? So this was by a dark matter experiment. It's definitely not the dark matter that most of the universe is made of because uh, the mass of the particles is wrong. But it's still an interesting particle physics result that I'm not going to explain right now. Uh, the next question. I'm uh, go, the next question I'm going to go straight for. Which thank you very much for not explaining that. That's sometimes in the last five minutes. That's exactly what this Q and A is all about. Um, this is uh, one of the most exciting new images from Solar Orbiter that have been released in the last week from Matt Tana. Um, yeah, it just looks super gorgeous, super detailed. Um, we're learning a lot more about the sun, and you'd think as our closest star, we know. You know, we'd by by now we'd know everything we need to know about it, but there's still so much stuff we don't understand, like the uh, magnetic fields and all of that. So yeah, these these new images giving us 
really cool insights. And they just look so pretty because sometimes um, astronomers, we get excited about something and then we show it to the world and they're like, really? But this is one of the ones where the excitement matches up with like, you know, the actual visual representation. So that was really fun. It was really fun. Um, Kay, thank you very much for your question about gravity. We're going to do that next week because I've realised there's no way it's going to be able to be dealt with in uh, one minute. Uh, we've also had a question just on the live chat, which is where are the best places to go to keep up to date with uh, being able to observe NeoWise? So, uh, Tana, can I start with you? And uh, where, where would you recommend people going to check on, on on what we're seeing, what we're discovering and where to go? Um, I'm sure they're more local things, but I always, um, I always point people to NASA first because um, they make things very accessible. Um, they have a lot of free resources as well. And um, yeah, so that's what I've been using. And even just um, an app um, on your phone, mobile apps like Stellarium, those kind of things can help just to point you in the right direction and get yeah. you looking where you're supposed to. One of my friends is Neowise app for Apple products, so which will show you where in the sky. Um, in the sky.org is a really good website that tells you what's above the horizon based on where you are, because all of this is about getting predictions for where you are. So I would use that and Stellarium, which is also excellent, as mentioned. And we should mention. And we should mention your book, by the way, because this is also about, you know, some of the very exciting things that happen when you get a large number of people who are not professionals but are interested. The crowd and the cosmos, cosmos is all about the, the Zooniverse. Yes, um, please go and, and help us out. We've got new galaxies up, uh, yeah. so Zooniverse.org for people with spare time. Brilliant. Now, um, also, I believe that Trent, he sent me a text message saying that he has a show and tell, uh, which is very relevant to today's show. By the way, my show and tell, if you're wondering, is uh, I'm in the uh, the room in which I was born in. So there we go. That's my show and tell. I'm pr pretty much in not far off the exact position in terms of, you know, if we use the framing of this room itself and not obviously the movement of everything else around, but uh, where, where I was uh, born uh, 51 years and, and five months ago. Uh, Trent, uh, hang on, top turn that. myself on because I'm not normally on. I just remembered a weird thing that's relevant that was in the back of our cupboard that I made Mill dig out. My dad found this at a garage sale in Perth about 12 years ago and posted it to me in the UK. It's Halley's Comet Whiskey. <laughs> which he posted oh, that way and it, it's rotted the cork has completely rotted through it tastes atrocious because <laughs> it was half drunk when he got it and so, he so sent this it to is, me a little map on the so back. this is the, there's a long tradition of comet wine because in the 19th century several of those really brilliant comets accompanied very good vintages in bordeaux and so as a marketing so as gimmick a, people started producing wine whenever there's a bright comet. And if anyone makes Comet Neowise wine, um, you can send it to me via New College in Oxford and I'll happily <laughs> certify it as astronomical. Well, when we see yeah, each other next, you can have some of this awfulness. What alcohol would they like sent free to them? Like sent free to uh, them. Alcohol or any other uh, alcohol that you, or any other found some angle to make it look like it's research. And then we'll do come dine, then we'll do come dine with me. And oh, okay. perfect. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> reasons. 
There is always a warning, isn't there? The moment you have, it's like wine in a really interesting bottle where you go, interestingly shaped bottle. What awful wine. What an interesting connection this wine has to. What awful wine. <laughs> Whiskey. This is not always true, by the way. In fact, if you'd like to prove your point, you can send that to me. If you want <laughs> comic-related stuff, send it to uh, Chris. If it's uh, some other point you want to prove hot with your alcohol. related I'll do the hot chocolate tests. <laughs> okay, you do the hot chocolate test. That's great. The um, Thank you very much, everyone, for all your questions. I'm sorry, there were a few we didn't get to sometimes it's just we we run out of time uh we're going to be back uh ne next i'm trying to think oh no not well next week we kind of it looks like what it's probably going to be is going to be this special event we did from uh for for blue dot festival um i'm still not allowed to announce what it is but it's a really it was a lot of fun we had a fantastic conversation with someone who uh you can work out your own way of their connection uh, to 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 blue dot have fun during the week to work out who it might be um and then we're going to be back the week after for certain with amongst others anil seth uh who is always uh, wonderful on 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 neuroscience and i i did a one monkey cage we did on simulation theory was particularly enjoyable because both anil and myself are not overly keen with wasted time on talking about simulation theory and i think that comes across in the uh the intonation uh during some of the questions um the latest monkey cage i can't remember what it is this week but uh, we, we're nearly Conan O'Brien has just gone up on BBC Sounds Conan O'Brien uh, David Eagerman and Gina Rippon talking about the brain uh, for I think only the second time ever I think we failed to get to question one it always happens when we deal, first of all, with biology. And secondly, most importantly, if we deal with the human mind, rarely do we get to question one on that. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for uh, joining us. Uh, uh, the latest one on the radio, Trent reckons, uh, the Radio 4 version. But I would re genuinely recommend, uh, if you can, listen to the longer versions on BBC Sounds, the kind of 56-minute versions. Uh, we did. We had so much fun. We had Jane Goodall on uh, because it is the, uh, the 60th anniversary. In fact, it was... Yeah, I think it was uh, about three or four days ago, or it might even be. What's the date today? 19th. Yeah, I think it was three days ago was the 60th anniversary of Jane Goodall going to Gombe and doing some of the most incredible research in terms of us understanding chimpanzees and ourselves and our journey and our behavior. And as you know, she, she was an incredible groundbreaking individual and is still a groundbreaking individual. Um, and someone who was sometimes dealt with quite badly by some of the more uh, officious parts of, of, of academia who attempted to dismiss some very, very important uh, work she did. So she's a, such an important story. And we had a great time um, talking to her and others. But thank you very much, Tana. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much, Helen. Don't forget the tip jar. Uh, if you can, support us for our Patreon as well. We make lots of Patreon-only stuff as well. Uh, go there. Don't forget on Tuesday, Helen, at 7 o'clock, uh, free to access uh the uh it, and with the the engineering awards and you're going to find the most excitable human being ever on diggers remember that is the promise um thanks very much for watching keep up to date with all the things we're doing uh enjoy the rest of your week bye-bye thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.